Tov. Good morning. It's wonderful to start again. We're going to be learning today, this morning, Lirufuas Ben Sion Ben Rachel, who's in Nidrach Meshamayim. My limush should be a Zachus for his Rufuah. Um, also, want to wish a special Mazel Tov to, um, to David Foyer, whose son uh, Ben is getting married this Thursday to Ara Talpia. Talpia, Mitz Hashem, they should build a bias now and be Israel Hashem and Tiferes. And, oh, Mr. Wexelbaum is sponsoring us today. Leil Nishmas Chana Bas Naftali. Who's your site? Mr. Bert Wexelbaum's mother, whose your site is this Wednesday. Aaron Limush Nishmasa. Uh, the topic today is retreating candles in halacha, history, and meaning. Um, it becomes ever more important to appreciate the history of things, especially when we live in an era when history is being denied and twisted, especially, especially regarding Hanukkah. So it takes us back to, we're going to start trying to understand how Hanukkah developed in its practice from its original times in memoriam. And in order to do so, we're going to uh, go back to the times of Hanukkah itself, times before Christianity and Islam were invented, and before United Nations were, were deciding um, how history would be rewritten. And we will try to focus on how, how actually the development of Hanukkah actually occurred itself. So first, first, I'd like to try to appreciate the first Hanukkah, Hanukkah during the Second Temple time, Hanukkah after the Second, the second Temple, and throughout till today. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Interestingly enough, for most of us, we always have a picture in our mind. If we were to just stop for a moment and try to close our eyes and imagine what Hanukkah looked at the times of the Chashunayim, we have this beautiful picture of the Chashunayim walking into the Temple and uh, removing the idols and lighting the menorah. It wasn't so simple. It actually wasn't so simple. If you read Megillas Tanis, Megillas Tanis is a collection. It was a, a scroll or a, um, a list of all the days that were kept during the Jewish calendar. The good ones, the bad ones. And in general, the Gemara has told us that Bartle Megillas Tanis, that Megillas Tanis as a whole is no longer in, in action. However, we still have it, so you can still see what some of those days were. The only things really um, are still prevalent are some of the fast days and Hanukkah and Purim. Well, Purim is not Megillas Tanis, it's actually part of Tanakh. Um, so, interestingly enough, if you read Megillas Tanis, and I put it as the first source, but for some reason the heading covered our first source of Megillas Tanis. It says that when the Yuvanim, uh, when the Machar Shmonaim entered into the temple, it says what they did was they took their spears and they drove them into the ground and they lit, this, they, they lit these poles, these metal poles, as the menorah. The first lighting of the menorah was not the menorah in the temple, it was impure. They, they actually created their own menorah to light. In fact, this is, this is mentioned in the Gemara in Menachos, in the second source. The Gemara in Menachos is, dis, is discussing what materials are actually allowed to be used for the making of the menorah. And the Gemara has a big discussion in the second or third last line. Um, towards the end it says, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, Oimer, you should not make the menorah in the temple of, of wood. Like the Chashmonaim didn't make it of wood. It says, The Chachamim responded to Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, and they said, Misham Raya, can you bring a proof from there? They used 
uh, and they used uh, um, sticks of iron, which were covered in lead. When they grew richer, they covered them. They plated them with silver. And later on, when they became richer, they covered it with gold. So the original Chanukah, as it was celebrated, the original time that the Chashunayim walked into the temple, it wasn't the same picture and image of the menorah that we're talking about. We're talking about almost a, it's almost a military picture of what they were able to, uh, to achieve at the time, which is a little bit of a shock to necessarily to the way we think of things. But nonetheless, this is, this is what they had at their disposal. If um, it, it Actually, I was just going through Antiquities of the Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus on this section. It's really fascinating to read. You know, the Hanukkah wasn't just one big war, and then we won, and that was it, and we all, you know, ha- hung our, uh, you know, our guns on the, on the door, the back of the door, and we, you know, from then onwards, it was, you know, ro- smelling of roses and good coffee in the morning. It was a little more complicated than that. So you'd have to read through the time of Matisiao when he's revol- a revolt against the Romans, the, the, the Greeks. And then you talk about his, how Matisiao died and his sons, Yehuda. And it's interesting, the, the war after war that, you, that he calls him Judas, Yehuda fought. This, this is an example of one of the last ones here. And this is Antiquities, book um, 12, chapter 7, as an example. So just an example in, in, in the fifth paragraph. He says, Hereupon, Lysias was confounded at, at the defeat of the army which he had sent. And the next year he got an, uh, together 60,000 chosen men. He took 5,000 horsemen and fell upon Judea. And he went up to the hill, uh, the, the hill country of Beistur, a village um, of Judea. I wonder if there was a settlement. I just can't work it out. If, according to UN law, there would be a settlement because the Jews were, apparently there weren't Palestinians in the mountains at the time, but I don't know where they were living because we must have been claiming their territory from somewhere else. But anyways, we'll have to try to work it out historically. Um, and pitched his camp there where Judas met him with 10,000 men. And when he saw the great number of his enemies, he prayed to God that he would assist him and join battle for the first enemy that, um, with the first enemy that appeared and beat them and slew about 5,000 men and where, where thereby became terrible to the rest of them. Terrible meaning terrifying. So what, um, just to, just, this is one of those battles that he describes it. You know, when we say, Rabin biyad ma'atim, you just have to appreciate the odds over here. You know, we're talking, you know, they, they weren't an organized military bunch. They, they, in some of these battles that he describes in the previous paragraphs, they didn't have arms. Meaning some of the people didn't even, they didn't, they didn't even have weapons or armor. They just threw themselves upon the Greek, uh, the Greek onslaught and the Greek armies. You have to understand just what it means, what a successor was. The next paragraph is at the end of a string of battles. He says in source six, in, in paragraph 6, when, when therefore the generals of Antiochus' armies had been beaten so often, Judas assembled the people together and told them that after so many victories, which the God had given them, notice how many times Hashem appears over here, they ought to go up to Jerusalem and purify the temple and, and offer the appointed sacrifices. But as soon as he and the whole multitude was to come to Jerusalem, and found the temple deserted and the gates burned down and the plants growing in the temple of their own accord on account of its desertion, he and those that were with him began to lament and were quite confounded at the sight of the temple. So he chose out some of his soldiers and gave them the order to fight against those gods that were in the citadel until he should have purified the temple. When therefore he had carefully purged it and brought in the new vessels the candlestick, the table of showbread and the altar of incense, which was made of gold, he hung up the veils at the gates and added doors to them. And it talks about how he rededicates the temple. You can get a sense of or the devastation at the time. And he goes on a beautiful description of this and he talks about the years and how long there was a gap before the, the we'll call it the traditional Jews had access to the temple. And look, at the, look at the last paragraph. This is fascinating. This is, remember, Josephus is writing at the end. Josephus was a Jew 
who defected to the Roman side during 68. That was during the war of um, the war against the Romans, and um, he then became very close to Vespasian. So listen, listen to what he's saying from that historical perspective about 200 years later. He says, now Judas celebrated the festival of the restoration of the sacrifices of the temple for eight days. And emitted no sort of pleasures thereon, but he feasted upon uh, the, them upon very rich and splendid sacrifices. And he honored God and delighted them by hymns and psalms. That's similar to what the Gomorrah describes. Okay, nay, they were, they were so very glad of the revival of their customs, when after a long time of intermission they had unexpectedly had regained the freedom of their worship, that they had made it in, uh, in, in uh, a law for their posterity. <coughs> that they should, keep, they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of the temple worship for eight days. Notice, by the way, what's missing from his description? Candles. Okay, just by the way, <coughs> candles are in the description. And from that time to this, we celebrate this festival and call it lights. Okay, so we call this festival lights. Now, here is Josephus surmising why that should be, interestingly enough. I suppose the reason was because this liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us and that thence the name was given to the festival. Judas also rebuilt the walls around the city and goes on to describe it. I mean to say that from the perspective of a person living through another destruction, where he, all, he actually gave up, he says, I suppose there was a time where we got hope beyond our, our uh, expectation, was the reason why it was called the Festival of Lights. He doesn't actually talk about the candles necessarily, which leads us to the next question, which is, when in fact... Did the Neiros, when were the, the candles actually part of the mitzvah as we know it? When did we start lighting the menorah? We know that the Hashemunayim relit or created this new menorah at, the, at least the beginning. They lit the menorah in the, base, in, in the, in the Migash. When did it start? So here's the, if, you want to, if you want to be particular in terms of um, what the Gomorrah says, the Gomorrah is actually very enigmatic to this point. Listen to what the Gomorrah says. This is Gomorrah we're very familiar with. The Gemara is in Shabbos Chofalaf Mabez and says, My Chanukah, what is the days of Chanukah? There are eight days of Chanukah. And the rule of the days you can't fast or eulogize. It's a very odd way of describing a festival, by the way. Right? That's, uh, that, uh, that, that, that seems to be a byproduct. That's a side point. Why is that the first thing described? Very, very important question to try to understand. When the Greeks enter the temple, they they defiled the, the oils in the temple. They looked around and they found no, no, no oil except for one. Which still had the seal of the coin. It only had enough oil for one day. And during that period, that's when they lit for eight days. And here's the kicker. The Gemara conclu- concludes. The Shona Acheres, another year. <laughs> the next year they made these days days of festival and celebration. So the interesting thing over here is what's the Gomorrah emitting as well? The Gomorrah is also emitting candles. The Gomorrah is saying that in the next year or thereafterwards they made these days of celebration. The Gomorrah does not say that they made them days of lighting candles, interestingly enough. So what's going on? When did the candle advent occur? Meaning when, does, when did the candles happen? Which is a, a fascinating question. Let's, uh, if you think about this lo- logically, would they need to light candles in their homes the next year? Why would they? Because they now have the menorah in the base of Migdash. Meaning, what better, what better nace, what better commemoration of the miracle of Hanukkah could there be than everybody coming to the, the, the base of Migdash and lighting in the menorah which had been defiled? That, can you imagine? I mean, forget lighting in the Cedarhurst Park. I mean, you could go to the base of Migdash. <laughs> 
You know, it's, it's amazing. That, that would have been the icon of the miracle observation and commemoration every single year. There, there was, you needed nothing else than that. Okay, so so apparently, it sounds like the the, the Chachamim made a festival of eight days. So that that eight day commemoration at this particular time of year, there was Yemei Hallel, Yemei Hoidah, as as the Gemara talks about, as Josephus says, hymns and psalms. Right, there were all kinds of wonderful things that we did. I mean, even even Sodais, but doesn't say it doesn't say Neiros. Yes. Yeah, but that's how long the. Miracle was the very first time because you know it, 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 it was eight days. It could have been ten. Correct. They had oil. No question. So that's why. No question. Eight. Actually, interesting, interesting enough. Also, there's another reason why there's an eight. Is if you go to the Gilat Chashmonayim, you go to the the, the description that's in Chashmonayim Beis. It describes the reason why it's eight days as well was because that year in the caves they were not able to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, and so in uh, they, the this Chavos Hanukkah was almost a rededication of that original missed Sukkot, which was an eight-day festival as well. So yeah, there's other resonance of eight as well. Be it as it may, it's just fascinating that the Gemara is not talking about it yet. Yes. If they were only going to be discussing doing something in the base of Mikdash, no one would have seen it. Good. No one would have seen the menorah. The menorah is inside, number one. And number two, they lit the menorah every day. So what would have been what would have been unique or special? Good, so if they light candles in the in the in the, in the, the You saying what would matter? You're right. You're right. Right. So apparently next year, the year after that, what's going to be different? That what's special about that day? So it's a very good point. It is a very good point. There are sources which go in both directions. I did a little bit of research into when this actually occurred. Interestingly enough, I want to come to your point in just a moment. We can get to Rav Sternbach. Is um, interestingly enough, actually, it's. Um, this actually appears in a number of places, or some places you wouldn't expect. One place you wouldn't expect is the following. The Torah doesn't talk about Hanukkah. Surprise, because Hanukkah took place after the closing of the canon of Tanakh. Right? However, the Torah does give some references, some innuendos towards Hanukkah, which are helpful to us understanding the Hanukkah itself. So example number one is in the beginning of Parshish Baalaisra. Baalaisra follows immediately the aligning that we started this morning. Of the eight days of Hanukkah, there's 12 gifts of the Nisim. So the, at the dedication of the Mishkan, there were, there were the 12 tribes, each submitted a prince who um, brought a special gift to the Mishkan. One day, each person. There was, for all 12 tribes, with the exclusion of the tribe of Levi. So Menashe and Ephraim got separate gifts, but Levi was not included. So Aaron, as a representative of the tribe of Levi, felt terribly upset that he was not part of the dedication ceremony. He couldn't cut the red ribbon with everybody else. So what happened was, so uh, the Midrash says that Hashem says, don't worry, immediately following the gift of the Nesim, it starts, Pashas Baalosra, Baalosra, Sanero, Samupanea, Menorah, then the Torah describes, there's the lighting of the Nora. Beautiful. So Aaron, Aaron got the consolation prize of the Nero, the Nero's Hanukkah. Wonderful. But what everybody struggles with is, that's really, not, it's, not a, it's not a quid pro quo. It doesn't, it doesn't match. Meaning, the, the lighting of the candles on a, on, a, on a daily basis is, we'll call it maintenance. Aaron was missing dedication, right? So how does maintenance help with dedication missing, right? That the two are, they're not the same, they're not the same, they're not, not the same language. Moreover, if you wanted to give Aaron something and say, Aaron, don't worry, you've got it, you've got it coming for you, you've got, you've got a consolation. Talk about the fact that Aaron, every Yom Kippur, you're going to walk you're going to walk into the holiest place on earth and you're the only individual who has access to that. Talk about the Korbanos that Aaron brought during the dedication ceremony. Meaning, there are other options of describing what Aaron did so beautifully. Why? You know, like the candles, I mean, there's lots of other things. 
So um, the Ramban, in answering his questions, quotes two very obscure midrashim. Take a look in the in uh, in the bottom of source uh, of, of page two, in source five, the very last paragraph. He says the following. This is perhaps the most famous part of the Ramban. The second part is less famous. He says the following. He quotes Megillas Sesarim. So there's a this hidden Megillah. The Rabbeinu Nisim Shehizkir Ha'agada Hazu. Quotes the Medrash that Rashi was quoting. Hashem spoke to Moses to tell Aaron. Is you know what? Don't worry, Aaron. I'm going to give you a dedication. That dedication is going to be through your children, the Chashmonaim, who are Kohanim. And then you will have a dedication. So what was he saying in innuendo over here? Not about the daily maintenance, but the rededication. And it would be called a Chanukah as well, like the Chanukah Samizbeach that the Nesim gave. So there would be another dedication ceremony. But wait, history will tell. Time will tell. That was what he was saying to Aaron. So there's an innuendo. Don't worry, you're going to dedicate. Your children are going to dedicate the Mizbeach, uh, the, uh, the Mikdash again. That's the most famous level of the Ramban. However, there's a deeper level to this. Where is the secret? Where is the secret? Uh, where does this come from? That is quoting. What is it? He's quoting. He says he quotes Megillas for Rabbeinu Nissim who found this medrash. Fascinating. God, I don't, he doesn't. He doesn't give the sources. No, we don't. I don't think we. I don't believe I've seen it. it I don't believe we have it extinct. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. Nonetheless, that's where he quotes. There's a, he now quotes the medrash Yalam Dani. We can find this. We can find this next medrash. So we have a. The quotes of Ra'isi Oid Biyalam Deno, Vachemba Medrash Rabba, Omar Akadosh Baruch Lamoshe, Lech Omar Laaron, Altis Yore, Legdola Mizois Atomuchon. He says, You got better than them, better than those, the Nasim. Hakorbonos Kozman Shebesem Yidash Kayam Kehen Noagim. As long as the Migdash is in action, you have Korbanos. Remember, that's what the Nesim are bringing. They were bringing prerequisites for bringing Korbanos. So they have that as long as the base of Migdash is there. Avala Neirois. The candles, the candles will always be lit. And the brachas which you give, Aaron, the Birkas Kohanim, will not disappear forever. What does that mean? In the picture on the right, on Titus's arch, when there's no base of Mikdash, they take away the clay shares. There's no place. He says, what is he talking about? He's not talking about even a rededication at the time of the Chashmonai. He's talking about the longevity of the candles that Aaron would have. Meaning to say, I'm going to talk about the service which goes beyond the Migdash. You worried you're not part of the dedication? Don't worry, I'm going to give you something which goes far beyond the Migdash. And that is the candles. Because the candles are going to continue after the destruction of the, of, of the Migdash itself. There are those who say from this Ramban that the candles therefore actually start taking effect only after the Khurban. Meaning... What's the point of the Neros Chanukah is when they no longer have the, Neros, the, the Neros in the Beis Midash, now we have the commemoration of this. Who says this? There's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting and obscure sources to this. But, but interestingly enough, Rav Moshe Sternbach, um, Shalita, was asked this question about when the Neros Chanukah started. And he says a very fascinating thing in his, his, um, his uh, response to Moadim Uzmanim, the second volume. 
He says um, he has a longer tshuva, and again, this is, um, we're just skipping a lot of the main details, but he asks exactly this question. He says, in the, this is in a footnote, He says, look, I'm really actually in doubt. Did Yehuda Maccabee himself say that we're going to light by our houses outside? And therefore, while they were lighting in the Mikdash, everybody was lighting in the individual homes. Or they made just an eight-day festival of celebration and thanksgiving. Or that all we needed was the fact that you could look to the Mikdash and know that they were lighting and maybe there was a special ceremony and they had dignitaries, whatever it was. But in the end of the day, that, that, that was their celebration. He doesn't know. He quotes, um, we're going to skip, but the, uh, the end of the paragraph, he quotes Megillas Antiochus. That seems to suggest that they were lighting even during the second temple period. In the second paragraph, listen to what his, his suggestion is. He says, Om Nam Nireh. Um, in, in source 6, second paragraph, he says, Om Nam Nireh. Shem tiknu yomim elu limei simcha v'halel v'hoidah. V'tiknu namineros l'zeicher anais. He says, they made, these, they, 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 they made the, the festivals of Thanksgiving. And they made candles even at the original time. For the remembering of the Nes. He says, of course it was always a festival of lights. But it was never a chiv. They never mandated that every house, every individual should go home and light in a particular way, in a particular place. That developed later. Meaning to say there were lights originally. But they didn't need to make it a mandate until we no longer had the mandate in the Mikdash. And therefore he says, In the diaspora or around in Israel, they didn't need to light in their houses. Only as needed. So for instance, So when they had big gatherings, you can imagine, around the time of year, and they would light candles to commemorate what happened. But it wasn't that everybody came home and was buying you know, the packs of the candles and, the, and working out the half an hour after dark. They would light as appropriate at the times because they had the real deal. Then after the real deal disappeared, that's when they mandated that that lighting become more, more significant, which makes a lot of sense. So what, 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 what was that? So you're saying that the lighting of the candles originally was a zeichr Well, originally the original lighting was during the times of the Besamish, so it wasn't a zeichr at all, it was a zeichr for the next. So the mandating of those candles being more specific <coughs> is quasi mezecher the the mikdash, but it's also a more of a fixed celebration or commemoration of the nais because you no longer have the mikdash as well. So it's a little bit of both. That's why you said two brothers. What was that? That's why you said two brothers. Nisim and Mrs. Um, and fascinating. Anyways, this is just fascinating. Uh, most of us don't consider this. We also notice, by the way, in, in case you're wondering, the Machlokas of Eisel and Beisham about the candles going up or down, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, right? Whichever direction we're going, um, the Beisel and Beisham are at the tail end of the Beis Hamikdash. The fact that they're arguing as to which di- of how the, the actual Hadlaka should look like shows us that there was not a, so- a solid practice yet, and they didn't need to be Caesar Sternbach because you had the Mikdash. So at parties, you'd light candles as a, as a commemoration. Right, in those days there was no Kwanzaa, there was no Christmas trees, everything was, that, that, this was the only thing that was going on at that time, that time of year, right? So therefore this, is, this, is, was, this was um, the, the lighting ceremony. So now, as, the, as Chazal solidify this miracle, right, as they solidify the practice of the commemoration, as the Mikdash is going away, 
this is when it, this is when we enter the game, and this is when we start asking the following questions. Let, let's go on to now into contemporary times. So, how does this work? So, Gemara tells us how did this concretize? How did this become tangible in the midst that we know and love today? So, here we go. The Gemara tells us there were further developments. Okay, this is why this is such a fascinating discussion because as we go further in history, it changes in terms of the the, 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 the times that we're living in. So here we go. The Gemara tells us the following in Shabbos Chofanov. The place to put the Ner Chanukah is outside your door. Okay, outside your door. And Rashi says the reason is because we we're, we're, we're want to pair the fire same that nice. We want people to know about it. So therefore, the best place to do it is that if you, people are driving past your house, then people are going to see it. If you live in an, in an apartment, you put it in the window facing the Rosh Hashanah, and of course that's provided that your apartment is below 20 amos, which is more likely in those times than today. Okay? Um, and finally, But, if you're living at the times of danger, then you put it on your table, that's sufficient, says the Gemara. What are we talking about over here? What, what danger are we talking about? Now, let's, let's remember. Gomorrah is, is talking about... Gomorrah is published in the year, around the year 500. Okay, so 1,500 years ago. So we need to work out when beforehand in that period of time is the Gomorrah talking about. What, and remember, it's actually quoting a Brysa, Tanarabonon. So this is Tanatic material from the times of Tanaim. Tanaim time ended around the year 200. Okay, so 1,800 years ago, beforehand, we're talking about some danger which was posed to the lighting of the candles. What was that danger? Christianity. What was it? No, so we're not, actually, nobody points to Christianity in this particular one. In this one, we actually point, point to a very unusual dis, uh, di- direction. Rashi says the following. This is an unknown danger to most of us. Rashi says, so Rashi says, the Persians, the Persians were the problem. Okay, so what was the problem with the Persians? Is that they would not allow any candles to be lit out on their festival, except in their base of Zara. So actually, who are we talking about over here? Zoroastrians, the good old Zoroastrians, okay? Not Rastafarians. The Zoroastrians, the Zoroastrians were, now, if you're depending where you go read about this, some people say they claim they're one of the world's oldest monotheistic religions. They're not monotheistic, they're dualistic. Right? There's powers of good and evil, and there's dark and light. So they, 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 they may believe in Zoroaster as one power, but there's powers of light and powers of darkness, and they have fire temples in which they serve the, um, these different powers. Happens to be that it was a very popular religion in those days, and in Persia specifically, um, there was, it was a very popular religion. Um, it happened to be it took a, a, a sharp decline in the 600s. Why? Because Islam took over Iran. And, and in, the, in the world of Islam, there are three types of people. And we're not talking about in gender right now, because that's a bit in terms of in terms there are believers, there are pagans, and there are people of the book. People of the book are Christians and Jews who can live in a, in a subclass society under Islam. Right? So if you read uh, Ayatollah Ali, uh, Ali Khomeini's book about his, his, pro, his prolonged plan for Israel, his plan isn't to kill all the Jews, he wants to drive most of them out and have a million or so living under Islamic rule, paying the Dima, the tax, and the jizya and all the taxes and those kind of things like they do in other places. So that, that's generally the, the people of the book. But polytheists killed, right? the, meaning the, 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 there's, no, there's no room for polytheists in, in Islam, and, um, and slowly but surely they waged war, and there's... there's um, very few Zoroastrians left in Persia today. They still are persecuted um, a minority today. 
Um, is, uh, uh, the different numbers, but I saw 2 million left in the world together, maybe 800,000, depending on the different counts. But they're still around, um, and at the time, they, they were quite a threat to the Jews, because remember, the Jews are living across the, the we'll call it the Israel-Babylonian-Persian uh, uh, um, area around here, uh, certainly after the first exile, and people still remained there, and then uh, there was always a community in the Babylonian-Persian area. Um, area. An example that Rashi is quoting is a Gemara actually in Gitin. He has just an example. This is one of the many examples we see in the, in the Gemara um, in Source 9. It's talking about a conversation. There is a halachic conversation. Rabbi Barachana Cholash. So Rabbi Barachana was sick. So Ulagabe Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Lishuli Abay. So Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi came to visit him. They were paying, they were paying a Bikur Cholim visit. And, they, and in order to cheer him up, they have a halachic discussion with him. So they say to him, Bomine, Shnaim Shavio get me, Midinasayam, Srikim Shiyam Rebufonen, Nechta, Vufonenu Nechta, Moy and Srikim. So let's say a person brings a get for um, a divorce document from, um, the, from far away. Do they need to describe, does the messenger need to have witnessed the signing of it or not? That's a halachic question. This is why the Gemara is in Gitin. So he says, Omer and Srikim. And he goes on to bring a halachic proof. In the middle of the whole discussion, this chavra walks into the room as they're talking and takes the candle from them. Chavra does not mean a friend. It does not mean a yak either. And what it means over here is, chavara is the lashon of the Gemara to describe a Zoroastrian. Chavorim were the Zoroastrians. It's interesting, if you're not aware of this, when you read the Gemara, you don't, you, you don't not pick this up. They appear all over in the Gemara. So the Chavorim were these, these Persian Zoroastrians. And this, the, he walks into the room as they're talking and takes away the candle. And listen, uh, listen to this Omar. He says, He says, Rachmana, he says, Hashem, either in your shadow or in the shadow of the children of Esav, meaning I can't stand these Armenians. Right? So he says, from these Persians. You're telling me that the Persians are, um, the, the, the Armenians are worse than the Persians, and goes on to say that the, the, that Asaph was worse than, the, than any other um, exile. And the Gemara says, yeah, well, that was before the Persia, the, these Persians came, these Chaborim, these, uh, these Zoroastrians. So apparently they, lived, they were a pretty oppressive force in those days. Rashi says, why was it that they couldn't, they, they, they were, that the candles moved from the door to the table? Because of the Zoroastrians. That was as simple, as simple as that. And that was a very prevalent force for many centuries. Um, you can take a look. I just put in the Encyclopedia Britannica's description of their, their um, a little bit of a description of what they're doing, their rituals and, their, and their, their temples. It is interesting to note, by the way, that they have prayers five times a day. It's interesting, a lot of the Islamic later on uh, practices were also evolved from the pagan cultures surrounding them. Okay, um, so it's there's a, there's a lot, a lot of interesting things to notice over there. Zoroastrians were one of the big cultures at the time, but nonetheless, not, Rashi is not the only person who has a comment on this. Ra- the Gemara goes on to say in the Shabbos later on in Memhei um, Amud Aleph, the Gemara is talking about a famous machlokes between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon about the degree of muktzah, what types of muktzah are really in, in practice or not, and in and amongst that, the Gemara asks the following question. Um, they asked Rav a question. Rav was the last generation of the Tanaim, so living around the times of 200, plus minus that time just afterwards. He says, Can you move the, 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 the this is going to be like a shal this coming Shabbos. So you have, you light your Hanukkah candles on Shabbos. Can I move the candles which are Mukta on Shabbos? in order to, to, to avert the, the Chavorim, the Zoroastrians, from seeing them. Amaluhu, Shapir Dami, Shazazachak Shani. So he says you can move them. 
And that seems to be an indication that there's no problem of muktzah. They answer, no, that's shasa dechak. Don't worry, that's, you can't bring a proof that muktzah is in effect or not in effect because we're talking about the uh, shasa dechak. We're talking about at times of difficulty. So Tosus says over here, um, Tosus um, says, well, this, this makes a lot of sense because um, we just talked about beforehand how, the, as Rashi described, that there was a shasa kona, which means that the candles came inwards. Tosus' problem is, is, why are you only asking about the ner Chanukah? What about the Ner Shabbos itself? Why wasn't the question every Shabbos? Why do you have to wait for Shabbos Chanukah to ask if you can move the candles? Why not the Ner Shabbos itself? Right? Now, that should be the question about the Zoroastrians. Every, every Friday night you'd have a problem. So he says, well, the Zoroastrians have made exceptions. And they said it was fine to have candles which were there to illuminate for, let's say, eating. In those days there was not electricity. So when it came, became dark, especially at this time of year, how did you continue? The only way you continued was you had a light by your, by your table. So the Zoroastrians said, that's fine. What they were opposed to was ritualistic lighting, which was not for the purposes of eating. Where was the Hanukkah candle kept? Outside by the door. Nobody's eating by the doorstep, right? So therefore, that's why there was a, a specific Gezerah on, on, the, on, on the candles. And then Toysus is trying to work out why it is that surely if you put it on your table already by this time, right? If the Gezerah, if the... The, the retreat had already been in effect, and why were they asking this question? He says, maybe not the year, they, they, they thought they would make it, and they put it by the door, and they didn't, they didn't, didn't listen. Tosis uh, suggests. And then finally, Tosis comes to a final conclusion saying, maybe, in fact, it wasn't the Zoroastrians. Maybe there was a specific nation, we don't know who, that's, that made a decree on Hanukkah candles, not specifically Zoroastrians. He says maybe it was a more of a global, a global issue, which Tosis suggests as well, sort of broadening the scope. I did check, by the way, that the Zoroastrians, like good or any old good old pagan um, um, f- um, religion, did have a winter solstice holiday. Okay, they had a good, wi- a good old. Uh, the pagans had a good old w- a winter solstice holiday. Yeah. In those days, and so certainly in the Middle East er- um, area, many of the pagan religions had what were called solstice holidays, which means to say that solstice is around the twenty-first of December these days. <coughs> but around this time of year, there was usually a pagan festival of lights. Okay. Um, well, there are some scholars who would suggest that Hanukkah is a derivation of a pagan light festival, in fact. There's a very obvious reason why that can't be so, um, but we're going to not discuss that now because that's a very fascinating sheer in and of itself. I would suggest, if you have a chance, to um, take a look at... Um, Rabbi Foreman just put out a video on Hanukkah called um, Reindeer and Latkes. Um, and it's worthwhile just taking a look at the, the, the actual... The actual underpinnings and the roots of Hanukkah. Hanukkah started much earlier ideologically than the Chashmonaim. And it's very fascinating to try to appreciate and unpack that. Maybe, one, maybe someday we'll try to unpack that itself. But be it as it may, there seem to be two problems with the lighting of Hanukkah which drove the candles inwards, and one of them either being the Zoroastrians at the time or perhaps another nation which had a problem. I was gonna, if it's all right, I'm going to hold the questions because we only have a very little time left for a lot of information. So... Uh, what, what happens today? So, so what, what, is the, what is the halacha today? The Shulchan Aruch tells us very explicitly that um, it, it describes the same, almost word for word, the Gemara, that it started, on the, it started on the doorstep, and then if you're in an apartment, it was upstairs, and then it moved towards the table of the dial. That's what the Shulchan Aruch says. And, and, and that's how it's paskant. We bring, it, bring on the t- we bring it to the table. Interestingly enough, I assume that most people over here do not light on their, on their tables. Where do we most of us light? The windows. So where do the windows come from? That's, that's, that was kind of the question. The gap between Shulchan Aruch and what we do today is, is, is strange. Where did the window enter into, into our tradition? Um, moreover, another question we can ask is, so what happens there when the danger disappears from the outside? If the danger disappears from the outside, surely then the candle should snap back 
to where they used to be, right? So if the problem was the outside, so let them go back to the outside. Why didn't they? In fact, many of the medieval commentators, as an example, the Or Zarua, who is one of the predominant halachic rishonim in, in, uh, in the Ashkenazi side of things, says in the, at, the end of, at the end of Source 14, he says, He says, I don't understand why it is that when the danger has uh, disapparated, has gone away from outside, then surely the candle should return to their original state by the door. Why not? He doesn't know why. What was that? Yes, yeah, sure, but in general, the practice, the predominant practice today is not to light by our doors. So he says the practice should have been. If you have access, if you're close by your chatzot. So in Israel we do today. But I'm told, let's, let's, let's build this up historically. Apparently at the time in Europe that the, the Orzarua was living in the 1300s, this was not the practice, and he was questioning it. The Baal Ha'itzur, who is, a, who is a, also a, a, a contemporary, or an earlier contemporary, says that, he says in the Source 15, So he says, he says it's up to the individuals. It's not going to be mandated. He says, if you can, do. If you don't, if you can't, can't. Don't. So the, the, the Baal Ha'itzur is saying is, the danger has uh, disappeared. Apparently, in the medieval state, times in Europe, they weren't feeling the danger of lighting candles outside. The Orzaro says, I'm not sure why my community are not. The Bala Itra says, you should if you can. He's not mandating it. He's not making it um, a red line. But nonetheless, he says that the, the narrows should migrate outside, um, outwards again. Um, the, the most fascinating source in this regard, I found, was actually the Aruch HaShulchan, of Yechil Epstein, who lived in the 1800s. Okay, so listen to what he says. This is a really fascinating, gives us fascinating insight into the halachic process itself. Um, in source 18, he says the following. We don't mind outside. He says there's no danger here. Now remember there were, listen, late 1800s. There were problems in Eastern Europe. Okay, so the, meaning there were, there were pogroms. There were, you, you, we, we, we talked a little bit about this. this it wasn't an easy time necessarily. But, nonetheless, he felt that there wasn't a danger specifically for lighting a candle outside. Okay, that, was, that was not going to cause or, um, the, uh, the pogrom. He says, It is almost impossible, not, not done. He says, look, go outside, and there's this polar vortex there all the time during Hanukkah. It's very cold outside. There's rain, there's sleet, there's snow. The only way you could possibly light the menorahs outside now, not in the nice balmy Middle East or ba- Babylonia or Persia, but in good old Eastern Europe, the only way you could do it is if you got a glass box. He says, The Rabbonon wouldn't make a mandate that every single Jewish house should have to go now and find a box, a glass box. Meaning, Maybe, according like the Bala Idris said, maybe it should go outside. But Chazal not going to make a blanket rule to make now an extra expense for every family to mandate it as a halacha that everybody has to go buy this glass box to put the menorahs outside. says, He feels that there's less of a recognition of the, of, of the mitzvah as well. Meaning, to say that people are not waltzing outside during that time as much because it's cold. And finally, And also, he feels that there are problems with the authorities. Meaning it's not a danger, but it's an issue of legal license. People are not going to allow, the authorities are not going to allow them to light outside. 
We all lot in our houses. And therefore, because the main audience now is no longer the street, but the house, we don't have to worry about if it's exactly in the tefach that's closest to the door. We should try to light near the door frame, even on the inside, he says. And then he goes on to say, Omnam, towards the end of the line, Im rabim So let's say you have a large family, and there's lots of people who want to light, and there's just not enough space by the door to light all these menorahs. Because all the candles are going to get mixed up. It'll look like day 58 by the time you're finished. Right? So you're not going to know how many candles there are. He says, therefore, we should put them towards the windows. It should be a place that is distinct from the, the annual regular candles that you keep in your house. Wherever you put your regular candles. He says, this is the Rav Yechiel Michal Epstein's personal suggestion. He says, What's the best practice? He says, you should put in the window, not just because of a space issue, but because you're migrating outwards without getting outwards. It's almost like the candles retreated and the candles wanted to get back out again, but they couldn't ideologically because practically speaking, you can't put it in the cold. You don't have the license to do it. So you put it in the window, which is the closest bridge between the two of them. That's what the Aruch HaShulchan says himself. Fascinatingly enough, of course, if you read the tshuva of Rav, Yo- Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Moshe Feinstein says the same thing. He, puts, he says, we light in the windows because that's our interface with the public. Why is this important? Two very fascinating points why this is important on top of page 7. This affects two important halachas. Number one is the timing, and number one is the lighting in the shul. Timing. If our primary audience is the people in the street, as it originally was in the times of the Gemara, and we're lighting by the, the Pesach, what is the time frame? The time frame is only when those people are in the street. Which means to say, the, as the Tzai happens, when people are now walking away from the jobs because the whole day schedule was based on dark and light, so people are walking back from their, from their jobs to their houses, for about half an hour or so, says the Gemara, until the time when the last wood collectors are going through the, the marketplace to pick up the last twigs, when there's nobody else outside, done. The mitzvah can't be fulfilled anymore, which is a very short time frame. However, now that the narrows moved inwards, and the primary audience is our families, so what's the time frame? So the time frame is still after Tzais, but now what happens if everybody's coming back to the house at different times, and you're only going to get to the house at 8.30? So then... You light together with the mishpacha. Whatever you come back from work late and, and no, you, haven't lit, uh, you haven't lit yet and the family is, is still awake, can you light? There's nobody in the street at this point in time. Can you light? The answer is yes, with a bracha. What happens if the family's gone to sleep? You can light, but you can't do a bracha because this is the primary audience. Uh, you, could, you could wake them up if that's what they wanted. Um, but nonetheless, what do you see? Because who's the primary audience? The, the, the house, the B'nai Abayis. You see, the movement inwards has a lack of gratification in the timing of the lighting, and the not in the placement. Another example. Why do we light in shuls today? 
One of the one of the suggestions which is given by the by the Rishonim we talked about last last year um, on this uh, the, the, on this front. One of the reasons we light in shul was because we lost the pirsume nisa of being able to light by our doors. So how else do you explain the, express the miracle publicly? So we take the biggest public uh, public gathering of Jews on a daily basis, and that is at a shul. So lighting the shul was to commemorate the absence of the lights by the doors because it went into the house. Those are two outcomes of this movement. In terms of the meaning of this, just thinking about this, there are many suggestions that are made into this, uh, this, 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 this oscillation of the candles in our history. One is on, on, a, on a sort of, we'll call it a, a Muster level I've seen, is that as a description is that, is that, put on your table and that's enough. One fascinating interpretation I saw homiletically was that you know, when we're at war with the world, when there's a lot of challenges from the outside, from the physical, we need to, when we, when we, when we eat, when we live our lives, there should be, you shouldn't be eating everything. I mean, you shouldn't be completely involved in this world. Leave a little bit on your table when you're eating. There's a practice that you leave a little corner of the plate of the food. When there's a shasa sakana, when there's a danger of your becoming too involved in the world outside, then make sure that you leave a little bit of your, pla- your table in front of you. You don't, you don't necessarily completely imbibe yourself. However, I thought a more fascinating inter- interpretation was that which is yielded by the Bnei Yisachar, the Din of a Rebbe, who says a very fascinating insight. And that is, is that so many times in life, we, and it depends what type of personality we are, but you, know, you, you see things that go on in the world and you wish you could correct other people. You wish you could just, you know, you see things which you feel are, are negative and you wish you could say to somebody, you know, please don't do this. This is not appropriate. You're, you, you're, you're, you're acting inappropriately as a Jew, as a human being, or whatever else it, it may be. I just feel that you're, you're not doing the right thing. You wish you could say to people that, and you, you're not able to, because you know that you'll, you'll get laughed at, you'll get scorned. It's, too, it's not worth the emotional credits necess- necessary to make that comment. Um, and as you know, that, that the Toichacha, the idea of rebuke, real rebuke, is, is retreating today. And he felt that what the, what the Dinava says is that there was a time where we could light our candles, where we could express our values outwardly to the rest of the world, and we could say to the world, this is, what we, this is our ideals, this is what we think. But then there was a time when Mishasa Sakana, where, where people are no longer willing, people aren't willing to listen anymore. People are, people are on, on automatic pilot in their lives. Manichal Shulchan Avadaya means to say we have to keep the flame, we have to be- keep our values and our truths inside. We can't necessarily impose them or question or suggest to the rest of the world in the same way we used to be able to. We have to sort of retreat that, those, that, that flame inwardly. And I think in that respect, it's so meaningful that today we're witnessing the migration of those candles back outside again. Um, in Israel specifically, in back, uh, back in Eretz Israel, where the, the movement of the spreading of that flame has moved outwards. You know, they talk about um, Natan Sharansky in, uh, in, in, when he was in Siberia and how, how you know, he managed to pull together for one night of Hanukkah, he managed to, to bargain and get eight matches. And he said the brach, and he lit those eight matches for, for one second, you know, for three seconds that they, they remained a lot. That was his narrowest Hanukkah, his eight matches which burnt. That was the, that's what we've lived with throughout all of history, where we have to always be protecting and we always have to be hiding and we always have to be keeping the flames inside. Thank God, and the Mir Hashem, it should continue that our flames should migrate, not just to the window, but back to the door, so the whole world should see the values that we truly represent and hold and cherish.